Hey everybody, it's Adam, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. We hope that our time together will challenge you, encourage you, and inspire you to take the next step in your relationship with Christ. Well, I think it's safe to say that the countdown to Christmas is now officially on. In case you didn't realize it, Christmas is now just over two weeks away, and the rush is picking up. I mean, all week long, it seems like just about everybody I've run into is doing their best Santa impersonation. We're all making our list of everything that we still have to get done before Christmas comes. We're checking it twice, and we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that this Christmas turns out nice. So we still have gifts that we need to pick up, and we need to get wrapped, and take care of those last few people on our lists. We're hurrying off to the grocery store to buy what we need to make our famous Christmas cookies or our favorite Christmas candies, and we got to get it all done before the next Christmas party rolls around. We've got cars that we need to fuel up and load down with packages and presents before we head off out of town for our family Christmas celebrations. But through it all, Through it all, even as we endure all of this mad dash to Christmas, someplace in the back of our minds, we imagine that all of the effort, all of the energy, everything that we put into making this this Christmas perfect will lead to that picture-perfect Christmas. And when I talk about a picture-perfect Christmas, you all have an idea in your brain of what it looks like. And in my brain, it looks like uh, something that Norman Rockwell would have painted for the Saturday Evening Post years ago. I can just imagine in that picture a perfectly decorated Christmas tree that's lights are shining out of the living room window. I can imagine immaculately wrapped presents that are piled high on the tree skirt beneath that tree. I can imagine the hand-embroidered stockings that are hanging on the mantle as a fire roars in the fireplace beneath. I can see the entire family gathered together in the living room in their color-coordinated Christmas sweaters, sipping on the finest hot cocoa you could possibly imagine. And I can imagine that Grandpa has climbed down on the floor and he's helping his youngest granddaughter play Santa Claus and pass out gifts to everyone in the room. And everybody that's sitting in that room has the biggest smile on their faces and it looks like at any second they're going to be able to belt out one of our favorite Christmas tunes. Like this one. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Here we are, as in olden days. Happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us, gather near to us once more. Through the years, we all will be together, if the fates allow. Hang a shining star on the highest bough and have yourself a merry little Christmas now. It's a beautiful scene to imagine. A beautiful scene of a merry little Christmas. It's the kind of Christmas that we all dream about having for ourselves. But we also need to be honest here this morning. We need to be honest because Norman Rockwell's dreams about what Christmas could potentially be like or far from the reality that most of us face this time of year. Sure, we might imagine having a merry little Christmas, but let's be honest, most of us feel a whole lot merrier after the holiday season is over with, right? 
I mean, when Christmas rolls around each year, it is absolutely freezing cold outside. And we're lucky if it's just cold. Because sure, it's fun to sing about having a white Christmas, but nobody actually wants to have to drive to Grandma's house on a snowy Christmas day. Plus, this time of year, it seems like the entire world's stress level shoots through the roof. It shoots through the roof because people are crowding into every single store that we drive past. And we have to attempt to maintain our own sanity when we decide that we need to go out and visit Target or Walmart or the closest mall. And not, not only do we have to maintain our sanity just when we decide to go, then we actually get into the parking lot and we have to deal with the craziness of trying to find a spot anywhere in the vicinity of the building. And once you find that spot, you still have to go inside and you have to deal with all of the crowds that are gathered around in every store and walkway that you can possibly find. And when you make it to the register, when you fight through all those people, you still have to wonder if you can afford to pay for all your Christmas gifts that you just found. But that's not the only reason why it's hard to be merry at Christmas every year. This year alone, thousands of our fellow citizens in the United States of America are going to spend this merry little Christmas without homes. Many of them lost homes due to hurricanes that ravaged the southeast earlier this year. And folks in California had thousands of homes destroyed due to, due to wildfires. But it's not just other places in the world. You don't have to look past your own neighborhood to realize that there are people in the house next door to yours who are going to be spending their first Christmas alone this year after a loved one passed away earlier on the calendar. And when our families do get together, when our families do get together, let's be honest, we're far more likely to break out in a fist fight at Christmas over who gets to eat the last piece of candy than we are to break out in the song together singing our favorite carol. No matter how hard it is for us to admit, there are times when Christmas is far from Mary. No matter how hard it is for us to admit, there are times when Christmas is far from Mary. There are. There are times when Christmas just isn't a very merry time for us. And if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. You are not the only person who has ever felt like Christmas isn't a very merry time of year. As a matter of fact, in one of our most beloved Christmas movies of all time, that's exactly what's happening. In one of the most beloved movies of all time, the main character in that movie is feeling anything but merry on Christmas Eve. Leading up to Christmas Day, everything seems to be going wrong. And I'm not talking about Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm not talking about the Grinch. This morning, I'm talking to you about George Bailey. George Bailey, the main character in It's a Wonderful Life. Now, as the movie starts, George Bailey seems to have the picture-perfect life, right? He has a loving wife at home named Mary. He has four young kids. He owns his own business, which he inherited from his father. But as Christmas Eve rolls around, and it's a wonderful life, George runs into a big problem at the Bailey Building and Loan. His Uncle Billy somehow manages to lose $8,000 that George owes the bank. The bank just happens to be owned by the Scrooge-esque character, Mr. Potter. And for my money, Mr. Potter is the worst character in any Christmas movie you're going to watch because Ebenezer Scrooge and the Grinch, they have their redeeming qualities, but Mr. Potter, he's just a jerk all the way through. Well, when this money gets misplaced that he owes the bank, it leads George into a little bit of a life crisis. And George contemplates suicide. He contemplates taking his own life. But he's saved at the last minute in the movie by his guardian angel named 
Clarence. But even though George is saved, he still believes that the world would be better off if he were never born. And that leads to the best parts of the movie, in my personal opinion, when Clarence is going to take George and show him what the world would have been like if he was never born. And what does George find as he's going through this adventure with Clarence? Well, he finds that his once friendly town of Bedford Falls isn't so friendly anymore. It's now a rundown slum called Pottersville. You see, since George wasn't around to stand up to Mr. Potter and help defend his fellow citizens, Mr. Potter bought the entire town and he had run it into the ground. George also finds his former boss at the pharmacy is now locked up in jail for accidentally poisoning a young girl, which was an incident that George stopped from happening when he was alive. He goes and he finds his mother, but he finds that his mother is a lonely, embittered widow who is running a boarding house. And she's alone because his youngest brother is dead. You see, when George was alive, he was there to pull his baby brother out from, out from a fall that he had in the ice. Worst of all for George, he finds that his wife Mary is now an old maid and that his four children were never even born. It seems so far off and fanciful. It seems like a story only Hollywood can tell. But the reality is, in our world, things aren't that different than they were in George Bailey's world. Towns in our world today have fallen into disrepair due to economic hardships. People throughout our world are living under the thumb of oppressive rulers, just like Mr. Potter in the movie. Mothers bury their children almost every single day. Countless lives are cut short before they really even begin. War and violence, poverty and hunger, pain and suffering, they're all too real parts of the world that we live in. But then we come into this place. We come into this place this morning and we have the nerve to sing about our joy. We have the nerve to sing songs like Joy to the World. It just doesn't seem to make sense. With all the pain, with all the suffering, with all the hurting that happens in this world around us, we ask you to sing of your joy. Now that makes about as much sense as seeing George Bailey singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas after he finds out that his Uncle Billy's misplaced those $8,000. It makes about as much sense as telling people to sing out for joy when violence has torn apart their country and has left them homeless. But believe it or not, that's actually what happens in our scripture reading for this morning. In our scripture reading for this morning, the author of the book, a prophet by the name of Zephaniah, is going to encourage the people of Israel to sing after their country has been torn apart by war. So go ahead and grab your Bible, whether you've got a printed one like mine or an app on your phone, and turn to the book of Zephaniah. It's okay if it takes you a minute to find it. Zephaniah is one of those little books that are tucked away back at the end of the Old Testament in a section that we call the Minor Prophets. But just because we call this section the Minor Prophets, it doesn't mean that the messages that these the prophets are giving us aren't important, aren't worthy of us to listen to. The only reason we call the section the minor prophets is just because their books are shorter than the major prophets. That's the only difference between the two. But in Zechariah chapter 3, this is what we're going to read. Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 14. This is what the prophet tells the people of Israel after war has torn apart their country. 
He says, Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your judgment. He has turned away your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is in your midst. You will no longer fear evil. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Don't fear Zion, don't let your hands fall. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior bringing you victory. He will create calm with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you those worried about the appointed feasts. They have a burden, have been a burden for you, a reproach. Watch, watch what I'm about to do to all your oppressors at that time. I'll deliver the lame. I'll gather the outcasts. I'll change their shame into praise and fame throughout the earth. At that time, I will bring you back. At that time when I gather you, I will give you fame and praise among all the neighboring people when I restore your possessions, and you can see them, says the Lord. Now when Zephaniah arrives on the scene in Israel's history, Israel has nothing to rejoice about. Years earlier, their homeland has been invaded, they have been defeated, and those who were lucky enough to escape with their lives, they couldn't escape a massive deportation that left the people of Israel largely exiled from the promised land that God had given them. Life was hard. Life was hard on these people as they were forced into back-breaking labor, as they were seen as inferior to other citizens in the culture and the world that they now found themselves in. So can you imagine what the people of Israel must have been thinking when Zephaniah tells them to rejoice? They've just been through war. They've lost everything. They've been carried off from their homes. And now they're being told to rejoice. Now I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly what was going through those people's minds, but this is what I would have been thinking. I would have been thinking, how could a nut job with a name like Zephaniah show up and tell me to rejoice after everything that I've been through? I have nothing to rejoice about. My home has been lost. I've buried my family and my friends. I have no political power, no influence in this world. I have nothing, and you have the nerve to tell me to rejoice. I bet at that moment they felt a lot like George Bailey did in the, be, in the opening scenes of It's a Wonderful Life. But the people of Israel, instead of rejoicing, wished that they had never been born. Maybe you felt that way, too. Maybe you feel that way right now. Maybe you've lost your job and your bills are continuing to pile up and your credit cards are about to reach their limits and you're not having any luck finding another job. Maybe your closest family members moved away to a new town this year. And while everyone else is going to be getting together with family over the Christmas weeks and celebrations, you're going to be sitting at home alone with nothing but a TV dinner. Maybe you've lost a loved one this year. And while everybody else is celebrating the birthday of a baby, your mind wanders back to loss and death. Maybe while everybody's baking Christmas hams or turkeys this year, you're wondering where your next meal's going to come from. Maybe during this time of year, when we're called to be more like the Christ child, a little baby in this world, you're reminded that you have more years behind you than you have ahead. One way or another, it doesn't take long for all of us to come up with something that can make us feel less than merry, less than joyful, 
this time of year. But there's actually great beauty in the words that Zephaniah speaks to the people. But that beauty's not found in his call to the people of Israel to rejoice. The beauty in what Zephaniah says is found in why he tells the people to rejoice. It's so important that he actually says it to them twice. The first time through, he tells them to rejoice because the Lord your God is in your midst. The second time, he tells them to rejoice because the Lord, the King of Israel, is in your midst. So Zephaniah tells the people why they should rejoice and why we should rejoice. We should rejoice because the Lord is in our midst. We should rejoice because the Lord is in our midst. That's what we mean. That's what we're talking about when we say that Christmas is a season of joy. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth repeating again today. We all need to remember that the Bible wasn't originally written in English. And our English word for joy doesn't convey the same thing that the original uh, biblical words for joy convey. You see, in English, when we talk about joy, we're talking about happiness. And particularly, we're talking about a happiness that, that lasts. But the biblical word for joy means something different. The biblical word for joy isn't talking about a feeling of happiness. The biblical word for joy is talking about an awareness of God's grace. That's what the Bible means when it talks about joy. It means that you are aware of God's grace. And grace is one of those great church words that we sing about, that we talk about, but we never really stop and define. So my favorite definition that I've ever run across of for the word grace, again, goes back to the, the original languages that these words were written in. And what grace really means is that God is leaning toward us, that God is reaching out for us, that God is active in our lives. Or as Zephaniah put it, that God is in our midst. So real joy is what you have when you're aware that God is in your midst. Now think about that. Stop and think about what I just said for just a minute. God is in our midst. God. The God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, including you, is always with you. That's mind-boggling. That's mind-boggling to me. I can't even begin to fathom everything that that means when I say it. God is with me. Wow. God is with you. Just, just wow. God is with every single one of us. And that's actually what George Bailey realizes as the movie It's a Wonderful Life unfolds. George Bailey realizes as everything plays out that God has always been with him. But he also realizes. He realizes that God has always been with him when he sees how his life has positively impacted the people of Bedford Falls. And he also realizes it in the closing minutes of the film. So I want you to watch part of the closing scene from the movie right now, and I want you to pay attention to the expression on George's face as it unfolds. David, let's play that clip. Very little 
George Berry did it. She told yeah. some people you were in trouble with it. They scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions, just said, George in trouble. And tell me, you just never saw anything uh, like it spread like fair. Another run on the bank? Here I, George. Merry Christmas. Now, don't cry. Don't push. There we are. The line farms on the right. Now, that's a little bit of a chaotic scene in the movie is uh, the community is rushing to George's aid. They're bringing in enough money to more than pay off the $8,000 uh, debt that he owes to the bank. But as you pan back to George's face, you see him smiling. You see a smile on his face, and the only way that I can describe that smile is it is a joyful smile. And that smile doesn't come because of the generosity of his neighbors as they're literally bringing in baskets full of money to put before him. That smile on George's face happens after his encounter with Clarence, his guardian angel, when George sees clearly, perhaps for the first time, that God is truly in his midst. God has been with George every step of the way. He's blessed him with his family. He's blessed him with his friends. He's blessed him with a community that loves him and cares enough to sacrifice and give of themselves to take care of him. So much so that God has blessed George by making it possible for him to pay off this $8,000 that was lost. So there's no wonder why George is smiling. But George isn't smiling in this clip because his life is wonderful. He's smiling because his life is full of joy. See, life isn't always wonderful for us. There are bad things that happen. Violence happens in our world. We lose loved ones. We struggle to pay our bills. Bad things happen, so life doesn't always feel wonderful to us, but it can always feel full of joy. Because joy is being aware that God is in our midst. So it may not feel like it to you right now today, but your life is joyful right now. Because God is with you right now. God is in your midst right now. So no matter, no matter how you're feeling today, just over two weeks before Christmas Day comes this year, whether you're feeling up to having that merry little Christmas from the song I mentioned earlier, or you're feeling like George Bailey did through most of It's a Wonderful Life, take time over the next few weeks and see that God is in your midst. Notice God's fingerprints on your life and let that fill you with joy. Not a feeling of happiness, but an awareness God is with you always. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the reminder this morning of what real joy is. Joy is not about a feeling that we have. It's about an awareness that we have of you. God, you are always leaning into our lives. You are always reaching out for us. You are always in our midst. So God, even when it feels like we're alone, even when it feels like our lives are anything but wonderful. Help us to see that we are never alone, that you are always with us, walking beside us in moments of darkness and in moments of light. 
that you never leave us, that you are always with us. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Hey everybody, it's Adam again. I hope that this sermon challenged you, encouraged you, and inspired you to take the next step in your relationship with Christ. If it did, then take a second and subscribe to our podcast. We drop a new sermon every Monday, and if you subscribe, you'll never miss it. And if you'd like to help someone else take the next step in their relationship with Christ, then take a minute and leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Your review goes a long way to help us share this podcast with others.